We are in a series called From Atheist to Disciple, and uh, we're going through the life of the heart of every person from the point of where they might think there is no such thing as God to the point where they say, Jesus, you are the Lord of my life and everything I have is yours. And you might not have ever been at that lowest point because of the way you were raised or um, your family or so forth. But there are people who believe there is no God. And in part one, atheism, we talked about that and we proved that's scientifically impossible. Part two last week was agnosticism. That's where somebody says, I don't know if there's a God. Part three today, the next step is this. I believe in God, but... I believe, okay, I believe in God. You've convinced me there's a higher power. You convinced me that God's real, but I still have a few issues. Uh, Matthew 17, 20, Jesus said, all you need is faith the size of a mustard seed. And I want to encourage some of you here today, people that you're praying for maybe in your life. You don't always have to be Mr. or Miss Super Christian. You don't always have to have everything figured out and know how it's all going to work. It's okay to have some doubts. It's okay to come to God with honesty in your heart and say, God, listen, I believe in my heart, but my head, I just don't know how it's going to work out. I don't see how you can turn this around in my head. I can't figure out how you're going to bring this to pass that you promised me. In my heart, I believe, but in my head, I got some doubts going on. And for the past few weeks, I've given you a lot of historical and mathematical and scientific facts. And so I hope that doesn't bore you because I love that stuff and y'all should pretend like you love it for me. So we're going to do a little bit more of that today. But before we do, let me just tell you a little joke to make a point and, and warm your hearts up. Uh, Sherlock Holmes and Watson were camping together one night and they got drunk sitting around the fire, as many Baptists do. And when they were, <laughs> just kidding. When they were out there, they, they decided to go to bed. So they're laying on their backs and they're, they're looking up, just just sitting there looking up at the sky, and uh, Sherlock says to Watson, Watson, what do you see? And Watson says, I see stars, stars, and more stars. And Sherlock says, and what does that tell you? And Watson says, well, it tells me uh, astronomically there are millions of galaxies. Agrologically, it's 3 a.m. in the morning. Astrologically, Saturn is near Leo. Meteorologically, tomorrow's going to be a beautiful day. And theologically, we have a vast universe and we're but a minute part of it. What does it tell you, Mr. Holmes? And Mr. Holmes said in great frustration, Watson, you idiot, someone has stolen our tent. <laughs> okay, here's the point, okay? You can have all the science and all the history and all the math and prove that God does this and prove that God does that, but you don't need all that to share the gospel with somebody. All you need to know is this. I was once blind, but now I see. All you need to know is, listen, God has done this. God saved me from suicide. God's bringing me, brought me great friends at the perfect time. God's given me a great family. He healed my child, and he can do the same thing for you. So that's all you need to know. All this other stuff is just icing on the cake, and it's great. It does build our faith, but when it comes to sharing the good news, all you need to know is what God has done in your life, okay? doesn't have to be too deep. Okay, so three points for you today. I believe in God, but number one, what about the resurrection? I believe in God, but what about this guy? Jesus said he rose from the dead. I need proof. If our whole faith um, hinges on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, that's something very important to us. I need to know proof. I need to know did it really happen. It, 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 everything that he said uh, dwells on the one thing, did he rise from the dead? Because if that's been falsified, if that's not right, then nothing else he said matters. Uh, when Jesus rose from the dead, the first person he told, the first person he told was Mary, the former prostitute. 
He didn't tell a preacher. He didn't tell a priest. He didn't tell an elder. He went to a woman whose life had been radically changed by having a relationship with the Son of God. And also, if you really want to get the word out, you telegraph, you telephone, or you tell a woman. So he told Mary. And so she immediately runs in John 20, 17. He said, go tell my disciples that I've risen from the dead. It's good news. So Mary runs and she tells everybody. And they're all so excited and they're high-fiving each other. And, and Peter says, I knew first that he'd be the one to rise from the dead. And John says, oh, I can't wait to see him. And Matthew says, I'm glad he did because I left this great job to follow him. So he better be true to his word. And everybody's excited. Everybody except for one man, Thomas. Thomas said, hold on, everybody. Whoa, 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 whoa. I believe. I, I love Jesus. I spent time with him like y'all. But, but, verse 25, unless I see proof, unless I see the scars in his hands and, and, and the side where the spear went, I'm not going to believe Thomas spent time with Jesus just like everybody else. You might say that Thomas grew up in a church like this. And, and, and Thomas saw the prayer partners always filled with faith. And the worship leader always filled with faith. And the preacher filled with faith. And Thomas, he went to church and he went to children's church and he knew the scriptures. But, 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 but deep in his mind he had these doubts. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? And what I love about this story is in verse 26, it says a week later they were in a locked room and Jesus showed up. And listen, he focused his attention on not the one that walked on water, because that's pretty amazing. He focused his attention not on the one, John, who just laid there next to Jesus and soaked in every word that he said. He focused his attention not on the one that left this great job as a tax collector and prestigious position in life to follow Jesus. He went to the one person in the entire room who barely had mustard seed size faith. And he went straight to that doubter and he said, okay, you want to believe? Here is your proof. Listen, we think sometimes that if we waver in our faith and we're discouraged that God can't move. He can't do great things. Listen, sometimes it's our honest doubts that causes Jesus to focus his attention on us and come running in our direction to do something amazing. All you need is that mustard seed. It's the smallest of all seeds. That's all you need. You know, if Jesus were a charlatan, then all he had to do was change one word in all of his messages, and it would have been easy to falsify his resurrection. All he had to do was say this. Three days later after I die, I'm going to rise from the dead spiritually that's all he had to say spiritually then when they found his body and his bones his followers could say oh, 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 oh. he said he'd rise spiritually but the bible doesn't say he rose spiritually he did do that as well the bible says first corinthians 15 3 he died he was buried and he was bodily raised on the third day and then he didn't just appear to peter and just to the 12 he appeared to over 500 People, Listen, Muhammad's body is still in the grave. You can see his bones. Buddha's body and his big old bones are still in the grave. In 2,000 years, they have not found the body and bones of Jesus Christ. And here's why. He rose from the grave bodily. That's the whole Easter message right there. Listen, you may have a lot of doubts and other things, but if you believe that, big things can happen in your life. Because you know what solidified the faith of the disciples and all of his followers was the resurrection. It wasn't when he walked on water. It wasn't when he took a, a happy meal and fed 10,000 people with it. It wasn't when he healed blind eyes or a leper. The one thing that solidified their faith forevermore was when he rose from the dead. This changed everything. So much so, they knew no matter what happens to me from this point on, 
I'm going to do the same thing that Jesus did. I'm not staying in the grave when I die. I'm going to live in eternity with him. Let me show you proof because I study human nature, okay? I know how people react. I know what they think. I know, you know, I, I, this is why certain sermons speak to you so well because I'm just like you. We all think the same. I can prove to you that Jesus rose from the dead, not by Jesus' actions, but by the actions of his disciples after the resurrection. Let me show you how they chose to end their life. Matthew was stabbed to death in Ethiopia while preaching the gospel. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had spears aiming at me, I might end the sermon quickly and say, okay, let's go to K&W and go home, you know? So Peter was crucified upside down because he told his tormentors he felt unworthy to die in the same way Jesus had died. John was thrown from a cliff, he survived. He was boiled in oil, he survived. And he was sent to the island of Patmos to live in exile, all because he would not deny the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded in Jerusalem. Bartholomew, Nathaniel, was whipped to death while preaching in southern Arabia. James, the son of Alphaeus, while preaching the gospel in Syria, was thrown a hundred feet down the southeast pinnacle of the temple when he refused to deny Jesus. When they discovered that he survived the fall, his enemies beat him to death with a club. Thomas was stabbed with four spears in India while preaching the gospel. Listen, you know what calls this? Was being a believer. Don't ever believe that Christian stuff. Where I mean that um that American stuff where they say, well, if you're a Christian, everything's going to go perfect in your life, and you're never going to have any problems. Sometimes it's our faith that can cause things like this to happen. But they weren't bothered by it at all. They were, you know why? They knew if Jesus rose from the dead, they're going to as well. Andrew was whipped by seven soldiers in Greece and then crucified. His followers reported that when he was led to the cross, he said, I've long desired and expected this happy hour. He continued to preach to his tormentors in what is now the Soviet Union for two days until he died. Paul, the apostle, was beheaded by Emperor Nero. Matthias, who was chosen to replace Judas, was burned to death while preaching. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I wouldn't sign up to be a preacher after seeing this, right? I think I'm gonna work at Walmart. I don't know if I'm gonna be a preacher. Philip was converted. He converted the wife of a Roman governor. Because of that, he was crucified upside down. When told they would release him for denying Jesus, he continued to preach upside down on a cross until he died. Man, is that faith or what? The resurrection of Jesus solidified all of that in their hearts. They knew everything's okay from here on out. Point number two is this. I believe in God, but what about the Bible? What about the Bible? Like, I just, I need, I don't understand it all. I don't get it all. I need proof. What about the Bible? Second Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Okay, those five words are given by inspiration of God. In the Greek, which is when the New Testament was originally written, in the Greek it's one word for your notes. It's the word theonoustos. One word for your notes, theonoustos. Theo meaning God, like theology, the study of God. Theo is God. Noustos is um, air or breathe or breath. Uh, the PNEU is like pneumonia or a pneumatic drill that, that runs off of air. And it literally means this. Given by inspiration of God, literally means this. God breathed. Now, I'm going to get to a great point in about five, ten minutes, so stay with me. When God breathes, it's perfect. When you talk, you breathe. 
God has never said this. He's never said, oh, I just thought of something. Because he's already thought of everything. He's never said, oh, oh, I forgot to put this in the Bible. Never. He's never, um, he's never, con he can't say one thing and then say, so he can't contradict himself. The Bible is God breathed. Now here's the next amazing part about the Bible. You see the word scripture up there? That means written, scripted, okay? God could have easily just told somebody, and then they tell this one, and they tell this one, and it just gets, you know, from generation. And we know how that goes whenever you, you know, tell a story, and then, you know, the preacher, I caught a fish this big, you know, whatever. But it's been, it was written. And I don't know if we can wrap our minds around the amazing fact that God breathed and 40 to 44 fallible men, I'm talking adulterers, murderers, some of them morons, he chose these men to write what he said. Now, writing it and it being on paper is really important. Uh, when you go to buy a house, do you want a word of mouth contract that that's yours or do you want it on paper? You want it on paper, right? It's like this, um, this uh, college student was doing his, his doctoral thesis and um, he, was, he was about to stand in front of the entire board and for the dissertation process, and he didn't agree with it. The dissertation process says that whenever you give your thesis, you have to write down where you get certain facts from and things that you were taught. And he didn't agree with it, so he was giving his dissertation. He would say things, when he got something very profound, he'd say, as was told to me by Dr. So-and-so at So-and-so Hospital. And the board just kind of looked at him confused, and he kept going on with the dissertation. And he'd say something really amazing. He'd say, as was shown to me by my high school math teacher, so-and-so, so-and-so. And he continued. And finally, the board said, whoa, 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 man. This is not how we do uh, the dissertations. You have to have it written down. You have to show us where you got this stuff on paper. And he said, no, I don't agree with you. Why can't it just be verbal? And they argued back and forth. And finally, all the professors conceded, and they let him continue. Once he was done, about a month later, his working professor called him up and said, I have good news. You passed your classes. You're going to get your Ph.D., but we're not giving it to you on paper. You just have to take our word for it. <laughs> and he said, no, 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 I think I'll redo it and have it on paper. Okay, here's why the Bible is amazing that it's on paper. Any person from any culture can do whatever they want to to study it. They can scrutinize it. They can try to disprove it. No matter how smart you are, no matter what you believe, there's no question of what God said because it's on paper. Okay, that's really important. Because 99.6% of the Bible has been corroborated by every other historical document in the world. In the entire world. Pagan historical documents, Greek, Roman, all of it. Now, I'm going to get something really cool. Dr. Peter Stoner, which I know sounds like a made-up name. It's not a made-up name. In the 70s and 80s, he was the professor emeritus of science at Westmont College. Dr. Peter Stoner took 600 of his students for one semester... And they decided to find out the mathematical odds that Jesus fulfilled all 53 of the Messianic prophecies that he fulfilled. Now, Messianic prophecy in the Old Testament, it's a scripture written hundreds of years before Jesus about Jesus in his coming. In other words, it's prophetic. God said here, right, that God said, this is what my son's going to do. This is where my son's going to live. This is what's going to happen to my son. And all these were written hundreds of years before, okay? So this 600 students took all 53 messianic prophecies to try to find the mathematical odds that Jesus really is who he said he is. And the Bible is actually true with what it says happened, okay? Now, um, let me just give you one out of an example of, of many. So one would be the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. 
700 years before Micah writes in the Bible, he writes that Jesus would be born, the Son of God would be born in Bethlehem at so and so time. Okay, so they took the world's population to figure this one out, and they took the population of Bethlehem at the time, and they discovered it was a one in 300,000th chance that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem like Micah said 700 years before. Do you understand what I'm saying so far? One in 300,000. The world's population, population of Bethlehem is a one in 300,000. Okay, so they calculated that, and then all of a sudden, one of the 600 students said, whoa, 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 professor, we forgot something. Jesus, his family, was not from Bethlehem. They did not live there. So what are the mathematical odds that Jesus would be born in a town where his parents were not from, and that his parents would be traveling when his mom is nine months pregnant on a donkey to a town that Micah said would be 700 years before. What are the odds that that would happen? You understand how you calculate mathematical odds, okay? So they were studying the 53 Messianic prophecies, and it was far too daunting for them to come up with a figure. They did not have enough time in the whole semester. So they took eight of the 53, just eight. Now listen real close. They took eight Messianic prophecies that are in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled in the New Testament, and they did not base it on the Bible. They found over 300 historical documents and references that proved these eight Messianic prophecies fulfilled. So in other words, they decided to take the Bible completely out of their math equation. You still with me? They submitted their findings to the American uh, scientific affiliation where that verified that these calculations were dependable and accurate in regard to science. Let me, for instance, for instance, okay, we know Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Here's why. His enemies took a census. Romans took a census at the time. So not only does the Bible prove it, but his enemies prove it. You understand? So they took 300 historical references proving eight Messianic scriptures, and the odds that Jesus fulfilled just those eight are one in ten to the 17th power for your notes. Now, I put that, no, that number on the board so that you would understand it. That number is a one with 18 zeros or a 10 with 17 zeros. That's the number. Now, do you know what it means to say one in 10? In other words, if I took 10 of your names and I put it in a hat, and for you to draw your name, you have a one in 10 chance. You understand how, that, how odds work? If there's five, it's one in five. If there's two, it's, it's, it's 50%, okay? So one in 100 quadrillion, that's what that number is. So now I don't know if any of y'all have ever dealt with a number this big. Does anyone have this much money in the bank? I think Forrest Gump made this much money on his shrimping business, but 100 quadrillion. So they came up so that we could wrap our minds around this number. This science team, they came up with an illustration to explain what this number looks like. Okay, here's what this number looks like. And I'm going to go over the prophecies in a second. You know what a silver dollar is? Everybody knows what a silver dollar is, okay? If you had 100 quadrillion silver dollars, you could lay them on the ground and bud them up to each other, and they would cover the entire state of South Carolina. Wow. And North Carolina. And Florida. And Georgia and Virginia and West Virginia. And then you would have to stack another one on top of those and then another one until it reaches one foot high and covers all of those states. And I wrote my initials on one of those silver dollars and I blindfold you 
and you just start walking. The odds that you will bend over and pick up the one silver dollar that my initials are on that cover all of those states up to a foot high is one in 10 to the 17th power. That's the odds that Jesus fulfilled just eight of the Messianic prophets. And listen, he fulfilled all 53. Amen. That's amazing. So you don't know if Jesus is who he says he is. You know what the Bible is, what it says it is. Let me ask you some questions. Okay, here's your questions. 2 Samuel 7, 12-13 is the Messianic prophecy. Romans 1, 3 is the fulfillment. How did he arrange to be born in a specific family or bloodline? Remember they said he'd come from the line of David. How did he arrange that? Um, Micah 5, 2 is the, is the prophecy. Matthew 2, 1. How did he arrange to be born in a specific city in which his parents didn't live? And let me add to this one a little bit, okay? At the same time, the star would be there. And we know the star was there because Herod saw it. His enemy wrote it down. The wise men were astrologers. They, they, they were looking for their horoscopes, what they were doing. Do you know they were following their horoscope before they met the Son of God? After they met Jesus, they threw away that crap, and the Bible says they followed the Holy Spirit. Yeah. You want to know your future? Don't look at the stars. Look at the one who created the stars. He's the one that has the future. Okay. That was just, a, I just added that in there just as an extra. I'm not going to charge you for that at all. I'm not, not going to charge you. It's okay. That was free. Isaiah 53, 12 is the prophecy. John 19, 18. How did he arrange his own death and specifically by crucifixion with two others? Okay, listen. You ready to blow your mind? A thousand years before he was crucified, David said, and it says, Isaiah said that he would be crucified on a cross. Now listen, a thousand years before. Listen real close. No human being had ever been crucified until 497 B.C. They wrote that Jesus would die by hanging on a cross before any human being had ever even come up with the idea. And it was written a thousand years before it happened. That's amazing. Psalms 22, uh, 18 and Matthew 27, 35. How did he arrange for his executioners to gamble for his clothing? Uh, Zechariah 11, 12 to 13 is the prophecy, Matthew 26, 15 and John 18, 39. How did he arrange to be betrayed in advance? Not for 31 pieces of silver, not for 29 pieces of silver, but for 30 pieces of silver and to be crucified on the exact day the Jews sacrificed a spotless lamb for their sins. How did he arrange it? Psalms 34, 20 and John 19, 32. How did he arrange to have the executioners carry out the practice of breaking the legs of the two victims, but not his own? You know, the Bible says, the Bible said hundreds of years before the Messiah, not one bone in his body will be broken. But every time someone was on a cross, the reason they break their legs is so they would finally die because they'd be done torturing them. And the thing that kept them alive is they had the strength to stand up to be able to breathe. So once they broke their legs, they actually died on a cross of asphyxiation, which means they would, they would suffocate because once their legs were broke, they could not lift up to be able to breathe. So they broke this guy's legs, they broke this side, and when they came to Jesus, the, the soldiers shoved a spear into his side, which caused his heart to burst with water and blood, showing that he died basically of a, of a broken heart. And when they went to break his legs, they said, no, 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 he's already dead, we don't need to break his legs. How did he arrange for that to happen when it was written over a thousand years before? Hosea 6, verse 2, and Mark 9, 32. How did he arrange to come back to life on the exact day that he said he would? How did Jesus do all this? Here's how. Because he's God. That's how he did it. My point is, 
It should be so easy to disprove the Bible. It should be so easy. Written by 40 to 44 men. I say that because some books, we don't know exactly who wrote it. For instance, Hebrews, we think Moses wrote it. But if he didn't, that adds another one to the list to make it 41. And there's two other books like that and so on. 40 to 44 fallible men. Written over a 1,500-year time period. The, the, the inscripturation process started in 1450 B.C. and it went to 70 A.D., okay? 1,500 years it's been written. It should be so easy to falsify the Bible. It should be easy. All you got to do is just find, um, out of the thousands of names, you know, begot, 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 all you got to do is just find one name. Oh, that wasn't his name. You see that guy, 134th into the begots? That wasn't him. When the Bible says that it took them six days to travel from here to here. Oh, no, I got proof. That city's 12 days away. No, no. It should be so, the, the geography, the maps, the names, the dates. It should be easy to say the Bible's fake. Just find one discrepancy. You can't do it. That in itself. Why is the Bible perfect? Here's why. The author is perfect. Perfect. The reason the Bible's amazing is because the author of the Bible is it, do you realize you have a written, written book that is written, that is authored by the creator of the universe? You should love this thing. There is nothing more amazing than that. Okay, I'm going to get off this point. Point number three. I believe in God, but what about personal proof? Okay, you say God's real. You say the Bible. I don't understand the Bible, but you say, you say Jesus rose from the dead. I want personal proof. 1 Timothy 2, 4, God our Savior desires or wants or wills for everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. If this is true, if this is what God wants, then why doesn't he do something about it? Why doesn't he do something amazing and prove himself to all of you in here and everyone out there? Why doesn't God show up on the boulevard or 501 Walmart for that matter and show everybody how real he is? Romans 1.19 says this. That which is known about God is evident or made manifest. Everybody say manifest. Let me, let me explain to you what this word means. Um, okay, ready? Go Steelers. Okay, so now, beforehand, there were some people that did not like the Steelers in this room. They just manifested themselves. You understand? We didn't know who they were, but they just showed us who they were okay so god the bible says has manifested himself listen into everyone's conscience because god himself has shown it to him ever since he created the world now you say what about the people that don't have internet whoa, whoa let's go back further man what about people that don't have clean water ever since adam and eve the bible says all of his eternal quality his invisible qualities eternal power his divine and perfect nature has been clearly not roughly like not kind of not with the screen in the way clearly seen through everything he's made so nobody has an excuse at all every person in hell was given a hundred percent total chance and opportunity to make jesus the lord of their life and god reveals it to every single person every person so you may be thinking well you know what i got this friend and I've been praying for them, and I want them to come to church. So if God would simply just reveal heaven to them, if God would show them heaven, then they would surrender their life and give everything they'd live for him. If God would just let them see heaven. Okay, you know the angels, I realized they were not made in the image of God like we were. They were made for God to serve him. We were made from God, but they were given a free will. 
And Lucifer, the most beautiful angel with all kinds of authority, he lived in heaven. He didn't live in the projects. He was never abused. He had a perfect father. And he lived in the most beautiful place in the universe. And the Bible says that not only did he rebel against God, but he talked one third of the other angels into doing it. Matthew 25, 41 says that hell was built for the devil and his angels. Do you know that hell was not created for people? Do you know that hell was not made for any of you? Not at all. So you say, well, what if God would just, if he would fix everything in my friend's life, if he would make their body completely well, if he would give them the perfect marriage and the perfect home and the perfect job, then they'd start coming to church. If God would answer all of those prayers, okay, Adam and Eve, listen, perfect body, perfect relationship, perfect marriage, perfect home, perfect job. And you know what they did? Genesis 3, 8, when they heard God, they ran away from him. From the presence of the Lord. They hid themselves. They turned their back on God. I'm getting to a really good point. So stay with me. Okay. So if God would just appear in flesh before us and do some like cool magic tricks. Like if he'd walk on water or, you know, feed 10,000 people from a happy meal. If he'd do something like that. If God would show up in the flesh, we would then believe. We'd give him everything. Can I tell you, God did do that, and we rejected him so bad that we tortured him to death. It says in Acts 5.30, Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging on a cross, and you're responsible. I got one more. What if Jesus would come back to earth and show off his power to the whole world and actually ruin the whole world? If he would just, if he would overthrow every government and be in charge of all of planet earth, not for one year, not for a hundred years. If he would do that for a thousand years, then everybody that I'm friends with, they would believe. Let me show you what the future holds. After the thousand year reign in Revelation 28, after the thousand years are over, Satan will still deceive people into following him. Can I tell you, God knows the heart of every person. And some people, no matter what he does for them, they will still turn their heart away from him. God does not send anybody to hell. People choose to reject God and live for themselves. Um, bad, good news, hell was not created for you. Even better news, let me show you what was created for you. John 14, 2, in my father's house are many mansions. I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. Here's my question. What else does God need to do for you to surrender your life? What else does he need to do? He rose from the dead. Now, that's not good enough. He gave me the perfect word that shows exactly what he wants my future to hold. And I can hear from God every single day through it. Nah, I need more. Well, if God would do this, if God would do that. No, no, no. Listen, your heart is the one that needs to change. God doesn't need to do anything different. And the truth is, if you want personal proof, it doesn't come from any of my scientific facts. It doesn't come from my history lesson. If you want personal proof, it comes from a personal relationship with the creator of the universe. That's the only thing that will ever change a heart. None of my facts and figures will change a heart. Only God can change your heart and the heart of others. I want to close with a story. It's a true story. And um, it kind of shows us what a real relationship, like the disciples have with Jesus, what a real relationship with God can actually do to someone's heart. One Sunday morning, the pastor of a large church told his congregation, instead of today's sermon, 
uh, I've invited a, an older friend of mine from out of town to, to come and share with you. And so the, the pastor sat down in the front row and this elderly man, the cane in one hand, his Bible in the other, he sat his Bible down in the pulpit and he, he shared with the congregation how much Jesus loves them. And what a good God we serve. And he decided to close out his message with a story. And so he, he starts this story. He says, listen, one day there was a father and a son and the son's friend. And they all decided to go sailing together. This was several years ago. And, and the father, the son, and the son's friend, they were having such a good time out in the Pacific Ocean. They were miles and miles away from any land. And somehow or another, they got caught up in the middle of a storm. It just, it came just like that. I mean, the sky got dark. The, the wind was blowing. The, the sea was crashing up against the boat. They thought it was going to capsize at one point. The sails were breaking. They didn't know what to do. All of a sudden, this huge, huge wave that was about to tip the boat over, it ended up throwing both of the young kids off of the boat. They were teenagers, young teenagers, on separate sides of the boat. The older, the father was, was just panicking, didn't know what to do. His, 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 he was screaming and, and, and praying at the same time, and he had one life preserver. And neither one of the kids had a life jacket on. And in a split second, he had to make the most excruciating decision of his life. He knew for a fact that his son was a born-again believer. He knew his son had a relationship with Jesus Christ, and he knew for a fact that his son's friend was an atheist. And so in that split second, he screamed out to his son on one side of the boat, Son, I'll always love you. And he took his life preserver, and with one big throw, he tossed it on the other side of the boat. As soon as the son's friend grabbed a hold of it, the father runs back on the other side to find his son, and his body was gone, never to be found again. The father pulled the son's friend up to the boat, and they continued searching for his own son not to find him. He knew that his son had stepped into eternity with Jesus, and he could not bear the thought of his son's friend stepping into eternity without Jesus. And so he's telling this story to the congregation. He says, listen, that's exactly what Jesus, that's exactly what God did for us through his son, Jesus. God sacrificed his son so we all could live with him forever. And he said, now grab a hold of the life preserver and make Jesus your savior today. And everybody clapped and they enjoyed the message. When it was over, the pastor of the church got up and closed the service out with prayer. The older man was on the front row and people were coming up and greeting him. At one point, these teenagers from church came down and they told the old man, they said, listen, we really enjoyed your message. It was really good, but we just don't really believe the story is true. You know, it just, it just seems like it's impossible. We know that's what God did for us with Jesus, but we don't believe that an earthly father would ever sacrifice his own son just so his son's friend could be saved. And the elderly gentleman stood up to his feet and he grabbed the hands of both of those teenagers. He looked them in the eyes and he said, I assure you, that story is more real than you can imagine. Because I was that father. And your pastor? He was my son's best friend. The only thing that can truly change a heart is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It changes everything. It changes everything. Science, history, all that, that's great. But the only way this can happen for you 
is if you say yes to God. Amen. Amen. Amen.